Tonight, I think he is going to be doing the same as he comes, and he shares God's word with us and, and some of his stories. So would you welcome Shane? Thanks, Bradley. I'm not sure what just happened here, but I have royally messed up my iPad. So I'll turn it this way. For some reason, it's zoomed in, and I don't quite need bifocals yet, but there we go. We're good. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Uh, last night, if you were here, I, I sought to kind of vulnerably, I suppose, share some of my story. If I can recap, my premise was very simple. The reason that we need revival, the reason that this is a beautiful gathering, is that we are a tired people. By that I mean the church, but also us, those of us that would identify ourselves as Christian. I think that culturally, practically, ecclesiologically, (laughs) we are a tired people. I think that's important to say it that way because it's easier to accept and nod to. We're not dead. Well, maybe, (laughs) by the sounds of it. We're not dead, right? That's better, thank you. Second, I thought maybe I should rewrite the notes there. We're not dead, but I do think we're tired. And I think the reason that we're tired is that we've been carrying a burden that was not meant to be carried. I think the reason that we're tired is that we have been trying to strive in our own effort. I think the reason that we're tired is that we look around and say, is it really worth it? I can keep going with that list, and I don't think I have to justify it, because I think really, truly, if we're going to be honest, we'll all admit that we're tired. And I think last night, my my premise was that when we begin to sit still, when we begin to to pause, when we begin to to really, truly invest ourselves in the practice of prayer, if you missed that point last night, you missed the point of my story, when we begin to really give ourselves over to that practice, all of a sudden we discover that Jesus has been hunting us down the whole time. Not just as Jesus chasing after those that are lost in sin, but those of us that are lost in the self-effort of religion. Jesus walks out to where we sit in our bored pews and says, come on, come here, come on. And then douses us with grace, amen? And says, wake up, remember who you are, you are mine. That was last night, by the way. We are Christ Jesus. And he invites us to follow him. And following Jesus is what we call the path of holiness. That's it. Jesus has walked the road before us. And he's left a few markers along the way, by the way. It may be a little overgrown. It may be that we need a little trail maintenance. I'm talking to a guy that loves hiking. But the path is marked by Jesus. The path of holiness. Last night, I, I said that the root of why we are tired, I think, falls underneath one reason last night, because we have pursued religion as a performance or a competition, when in fact, it is a gift from the God who pursues us. Amen? Tonight, I want to talk about a second observation. And I'm just going to give us a straight warning. I'm going to be tied a little bit to my notes, because I want to say it exactly as I practiced it. I'm going to say some things that are directed at us. Anybody ever had a family meeting? I have three kids. We have a lot of family meetings. <laughs> and sometimes, oh, and I forgot to tell you, and I live with my in-laws. Well, in their garage. I'll get to that part maybe another night. <laughs> but there's sometimes where Ashley and I, my wife and I, have to look at each other and look at our three kids and be like, go to the garage. Will y'all come to the garage with me tonight? Because we got some stuff to talk about. All right? Tonight, I want to talk about this observation. That we, 
Holiness people, Christ followers, Christians, the church, we have been consumed, taken over, enslaved by, maybe willingly shackled ourselves to a rat race that is fueled by the lie of scarcity and security. That's tonight. And to us, in that situation of which we, will, we do find ourselves, Jesus has something to say to us tonight. I know you heard this verse last night, but you're going to hear it two more times, too, if you show up. So it'll be all right. Jesus has this to say to us. Are you tired, worn out, burnt out on religion? Come to me, Jesus says, as he beckons us out of our sitting. He says, get away with me and you'll recover life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me, work with me, watch how I do it. That ought to be the anthem of every song, or every song and every service and every church, by the way. We walk with Jesus, we work with Jesus, and we watch how Jesus does it. That's a great anthem. Somebody write that song. 10%, please. <laughs> Learn the unforced rhythms of grace, Jesus says. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. I read this out of the message, but you know the language, right? right? That my yoke is easy, right? You know this passage. I'll read it out of these words so maybe we can actually hear it rather than just letting it go. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you, Jesus says. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Important words. Jesus' goal, by the way, for you is that you would live freely and lightly. That's the path of holiness, freely and lightly. And I'm afraid when you look around in many of our churches and the holiness movement, I'm not sure that free and light would define us. Buddy, come to the garage with me, okay? Here's my premise for the night, that holiness is the path that is marked by Jesus. Holiness is the life, the way, the truth of Jesus. Holiness must not be defined by anything more or less than following Jesus in the way and life that Jesus chose for himself. Those are words I stole from Dallas Willard, and they're really important. Holiness is this, that it is following Jesus in the way and the life exactly as Jesus chose for himself. And I'm afraid that we have forgotten or potentially intentionally neglected how to follow Jesus. We, a people who call ourselves holiness people, are struggling to find the trail markers. And it's time for some maintenance. I'm encouraged by these words by Eugene Peterson. It's a quote that I love to often refer to, and that is this. There are no experts, by the way, in following Jesus. We are all beginners. So tonight, we're all equal, we're all in the same place, we are all beginners in the path of following Jesus. Uh, a few years ago, I was trying to save some money, I was on that luxurious pastor salary, and uh, the sh- I just had a short distance to go to church, we lived in Kansas City, and an opportunity came up to buy a scooter. You were supposed to chuckle a little bit there. It's all right. I know because when you look at me, you would picture me as a Harley kind of guy. But the opportunity to buy the scooter came up. It was a pretty good deal. It was a couple hundred bucks, but it was purple. Well, yeah, thank you. Thank you. I, uh, I, I laid it down in the back of my truck when I took it home so no one would see it. I backed into the garage so no one would see it, and then I took it apart, and I painted it flat black. (laughs) And I had my little scooter, and it was great, great transportation. I rode all over the place in that little scooter. Matter of fact, Brad had a motorcycle for a while, like one of them big racing motorcycles, you know, and I would ride with him, or we would ride, and then he would go, and I would catch up like 30 minutes later to him. (laughs) Oh, we had a great time riding around Lee Summit, right? Scooting around and you racing around. One day, I'm riding downtown Lee Summit. And I've got my little half helmet on. 
my goggles, my flat black scooter. And I'm going a pretty good clip, probably 25, maybe <laughs> 30, right in there somewhere. Wee! Now, anybody ride motorcycles? Show of hands, anybody? Anybody? I ride scooter. Scooter, thank you, brother. I got to tell you this before we get too far in the story. There's a bit of like kind of motorcycle culture. Harley guys, they will acknowledge Harley guys, right? Probably not if you're on a Honda, but that's another whole thing. Dirt or, uh, you know, street bike guys, they'll acknowledge street bike guys. And there's this, there's this unspoken rule in the motorcycle world that if you're coming by and you see a fella, brother, or a sister on a bike, what do you do? Oh, yeah, I see some hands out there. Low wave, right? It's just out here, just right here, real, real subtle, non-throttle hand, drop it down, left side, people go, boom, right there. It's what it is, it's like, you're in, brother, welcome, you belong, <laughs> me and you, man, we're together, one heartbeat, Harley's forever, scooters for today. <laughs> when I'm cruising me in downtown Lee Summit, and before I could ever actually see him, I heard him. Just the pipes. It was a big old Harley bagger. A guy had coon feathers or whatever they are. Not coon tails hanging off of his helmet. Feathers hanging off of the handlebars. There's studs all over his jacket. This is like Sons of Anarchy or something. I don't know what it was. But it was, if you could picture Harley in your mind, it was that times ten. It was a shiny black bike. It was so loud. The noises reverberating off of the buildings downtown Lee Summit. Here he comes, handlebars up here. And in a moment of sheer panic, I realized that we are going to pass each other like this. And I knew in that moment, without a shadow of a doubt, a hundred percent convinced that I didn't belong. <laughs> and you don't make eye contact, rule number one. And I'm kind of looking to the side over here. I'm kind of acting like I'm looking at the, you know, downtown. I don't even want to acknowledge him. If I can just get the moment over with as fast as we can, that's better for me. All right. You with me, right? But at some point, you have to look just out of curiosity. And my eyes peeled up out of my shameful glance to the curb. I brought my helmet around in my head, and I looked up, and our eyes connected. And in that moment, it was one of the greatest moments of my life. I and my scooter, you know where I'm going, right? I look up, and suddenly this Harley dude, boom, drops the hands. <laughs> and I'm on my scooter, whee, drop the hand. <laughs> Brother, one, we're together, you and me, I'm in. Woo! It was one of the greatest moments of my life. I don't know why I told you that story. Except for this, it's a really weak illustration, but I want to tell you where I'm going at the end, at the beginning, so that you hang with me, okay? Here you go, watch, listen. The church is the Harley. What? Didn't expect that one, did you? The church is the wild and free, live light kind of life. The world is full of people like me that are not certain if they're welcome or if they belong. You with me? The church ought to be a people that rather living inside of a lie of the scarcity of grace or inside of a lie that says you've got to perform your way, the church ought to be a people who initiate inclusion. Drop the hand. Go for it. Everybody in? That's where we're going tonight. Let's walk through some scriptures together. Father, thank you for tonight and in this moment. 
May your word speak to us again. May your story that is found in the scripture, the story of the God that that the people of God have been trying to figure out who is and what you want from us, may it speak once again to us and may we be transformed today by being willing to listen and to hear your story. May you speak to us. Amen. When I look at the church, when you look at the church, it doesn't take too much to realize that we are struggling. If we're going to be a people that exist for the sake of the world, there is going to have to be some sort of radical difference than the current posture that we find ourselves in at the church. We've got to decide, are we going to people that are, be a people of God that, are, that look half like the world, that we stand kind of half in and half out, or are we going to be a people that are set apart people, a holy people? The good news for me is that I'm not going to get caught up in trying to say that, that, that there's all doom and gloom, because I don't believe that's the case, because it's God's church, amen? And so it's an encouragement for me when I read that the biblical story, in the biblical story that the people of God have been exactly where we are today before. Now there's some discouragement in that in the fact that we keep repeating ourselves. But there's an encouragement in the fact that God is faithful. Amen. Exodus, by the way, tells us a story of a journey of a people who are following God, which is what we ought to be doing. The exit out of empire and slavery. You could preach a bunch of sermons on that. And they begin to seek their understanding in the desert as an identity of a people who are devoted to God. God has called them out. You're my people, now follow me. Amen? You get the illustration, right? Call them out of their chairs, out of their seats. Come on, come on, come on. Follow me. You with me? God has called these people out of their enslavement and said, will you follow me? And they find themselves at the foot of the Mount of Sinai, a little bit of a summit, kind of like we find ourselves gathered together at a summit tonight, Right? This gathering of scattered people, a bunch of slaves, a bunch of people who are like, I'm not really sure if I should even be on this trip. Uh, What am I doing here? Oh, hey, what is going on in front of me here? And this gathering of scattered people was suddenly formed into a nation called Israel, people of God. And it was transformed by the will of God into an identifiable, intentional community with an intentional purpose. To be the people of God for the sake of the world. Are you with me? This is the gospel story. Exodus 19, if you've got your scriptures, you can go there and read along with me. Exodus 19 says this, Now therefore, if you obey my voice, listen to that condition, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all of the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, God takes ownership, but for you, you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. Do you know what that actually means in Exodus? You ought to be the Harley man on the bike giving the low wave to the rest of the people. Saying, hey, God sees you, you belong, God loves you, you belong, you're in. Come on, brothers and sisters, right? That's what it means, pretty sure. This is the inclusion into the family of God. And God set this particular people, this people called Israel apart, began to beckon them out of their pews and gather them together and said, you're mine. The beckoning of God to us to come out of our scattered mess and begin to faithfully understand ourselves as the people, as his people, starts right there at the foot of Mount Sinai. Biblical scholars call this the transformative miracle of identity. That you come to a place where you accept a reality that I am no longer mine, but I am God's. And something happens in that moment of accepting a new identity that you are transformed into God's own. The transformative miracle of identity. You have been given a new identity in Christ Jesus. You belong to God for His purpose. While we say amen... While we enjoice with the gift of the low hand of belonging, you're included. This identity as God's people is filled, by the way, with risk. Because if we read the Exodus story, as we keep going, one of the first temptations the people of God have in front of them is to begin this establishment of boundaries for membership. Is that a Harley you're riding? I'm pretty sure that's a wannabe Honda. You're not in. Hmm. You with me? 
They begin to establish these boundaries of membership to determine for themselves who was in and who was not. Now, God has already determined. I said earlier, I just mentioned slightly, remember the condition. We're going to come back to that. But they began to set aside additional requirements for membership. They began to be, this is really great. I love that I wrote this. There began to be lawns, lines drawn in the sand. Do you get it? Like the desert thing? Okay, just, just checking. I thought it was a great line. There began to be lines drawn in the sand, determination of who was in and who was out. And we see in the story of the Israelites repeated efforts in this struggle of trying to figure out who's going to make the rules and what's the membership going to look like. And they would settle on a set of rules and, and they would exclude a bunch of people and, and then they would come back and be like, oh, maybe we go oh, oh, here, come, come, come back in, come back in. We're all in this thing together because if we don't, we're going to starve to death anyway. That's the story of the children of Israel. They would, they would draw a line and then they would, they would reunite and they would renew their commitment to one another. They would welcome those. But it wasn't long before, again before another set of rules were made for who was in and who was out. And then you see in Joshua chapter 24, verses 23 and 24, by the way, we see that an entirely different generation that wasn't even at Sinai, this is generations later, that still they're doing this, ah, who's in, where's the line? Where's the? They're still doing it generations later. And Joshua calls his people together and says, in Joshua 24, he says, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you. Incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people of Joshua said back to him, The Lord God we will serve, and in him only we will obey. And they're like, oh, okay, we're all back in again. Woo, we're God's people. You with me? This is a fun story, isn't it? Israel reenacted this drama of line drawn, line erased, we're back in, over and over again. But here's where the story begins to become really complicated. What started as a simple call by God to faithfulness to the covenant, to keep the covenant, by the way, Sabbath keeping is what's being referred to there, which is interesting. The requirement for being under the identity of being God's child, keep the Sabbath. Jesus says to me, come to me and I will give you rest. You can tie those two together. This this call to keep the covenant, it began to be interpreted by different traditions in different ways. There's two core traditions I want to talk about tonight. There was first this priestly tradition of holiness. We find the priestly tradition of holiness primarily in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is a scary place to read. Don't. No, I'm just joking. Read the Bible, but be prepared. Leviticus 19 we, we find this, this passage. It says, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You should be holy, for the Lord your God is holy. The priestly tradition was, was calling Israel to stay clear from all that was common because such exposures to the common parts of life would contaminate them according to the priestly condition and therefore contamination would drive God out of Israel's presence. In other words, there was this thought that, that God could not be in the presence of the contaminated ones. By the way, before we chuckle at that and say, what was God thinking about? God can be anywhere he wants to. We still to this day believe that somehow God cannot look upon sin. We say that over and over, don't we? Do we not? I want to tell you something. That God not only looks, God seeks out to find, all right? That God walks in all the places. God walks through Sheol. God walks through all the places to find and encourage. God's not scared to look at anything. But in the, and that's where it roots from, by the way, this tradition that we become contaminated from God. Don't jump off yet. We're going someplace good. This priestly tradition then tells Israel to stay clear from all what is common. What it begins to do is it begins to establish a dualistic mindset where we can separate our spiritual nature from, from our physical nature, right? That we're just of this world. We're, you know, we're here, but we're not of this world. We're, we're, we're just set apart for some other world. And we've got to endure this thing that God created. I just love the world. No, he didn't really. He just loves what's the world to come. That was sarcasm. You get me, right? We begin to live into this very dualistic thought. Hang on, it's going to get good. Come to the garage with me. The book of Leviticus then in careful detail details out every part of life. If you don't believe me, I can show you. 
every part of life detailed out, ensuring that there is no contamination with the common things of life, ensuring that the membership into this family of God is only for those that are separate from the common things. You must be priestly. You must be wholly separated from all things if you're going to truly belong. That's the priestly tradition. The main, the other secondary tradition of interpretation throughout Scripture with this kind of idea of how do we relate with God, what does it look like, is found in Deuteronomy. And it places the membership requirements in different ways. Not only does it add a lot of the kind of purity laws, the kind of priestly traditions, but it really becomes all about justice in Deuteronomy. In a, good, in a good way, Israel becomes preoccupied with the vulnerable. We hear that even in the words of Jesus, right? That, that we ought to be aware of the poor, the widows, the orphans, and the immigrants. And they become almost preoccupied with that kind of wor- work. But it goes beyond that then. It doesn't just say, look out for those that have been injusted upon. They went a little bit further and decided that justice was for them to hold. You with me? Deuteronomy 16 says this, you must not distort justice, it says. You must not show partiality, and you must not accept brides, for the bride blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of those who are right. Justice and only justice you shall pursue, so that you may live and occupy in the land the Lord God has given you. They were following the command of God, but it became something more than honoring the justice of God and living out the justice of God on behalf of other people. They began to hold the justice. And what happens when you hold justice? You become a judge. Right? This is the, the Deuteronomy tradition, and they began judging. And all of a sudden, the list of laws for the judges began to get list longer and longer of those who were being excommunicated from the place of belonging. The hand went back on the handlebar and ignored all those around them. Who did it ignore? I could read the lists to you but it varied from one side of the spectrum to those that had improper functioning genitalia in Deuteronomy to those that they specifically spelled out saying, if you are an Amorite or a Moabite, you don't belong. That's Deuteronomy, by the way. And by these laws of justice, of judging, taking on this command of God and now saying we're going to be the judge, they began to say who's in and who's out, who is welcome to be included in the people of God and who is not. And by the way, if you go down and read those lists of the Amorites and the Moabites, and, and you begin to realize it was those that they had grudges against. <laughs> Should I preach on that one for a little bit? When we begin to, well, let's keep moving. Ironically, the same list of who's in and who's out, like who can apply for membership in this thing, a family of this God. Ironically, do you know who was included? (laughs) The Egyptians. The the people that they just were enslaved to. Isn't it interesting that we're given freedom and we always kind of want to keep that tie, don't we? We get freedom from a life of sin, and we're like, eh, you know, well, maybe I'm just going to keep that right over here just a little bit close to me. It's very interesting to me that in the list of those who could apply for membership are still the Egyptians. We find in Deuteronomy not only the list of who's in and who's out, but also the process of excommunication. It was a brutal expulsion of those who violate the list of rules. The words actually used are, you shall purge them from your midst. That just sounds brutal, does it not? You shall purge them from your midst. And those to be purged under the interpretation of justice are murderers, rebellious children, amen, prostitutes, adulterers, and kidnappers. And the list continues. Murderers, rebellious children, prostitutes, adulterers, kidnappers. No chance for you. One might say that this interpretation of membership into the community of God is primarily concerned for their own safety rather than justice. You with me? They establish the rules of justice based off of their own fears so that they can push anyone away from them who might threaten their way of thinking or their own comfort. Spirit of Lord, speak. 
However, the story of Israel's people continues, and we find this theme of inclusion, exclusion, membership, who's in, who's out, who's part of this grand family of God. We find it again in the prophet Isaiah's writing much later. Again, the people of Israel return to this complicated issue of who is in and who is out. And it's fascinating to me, as you read through Scripture, to recognize that this Isaiah text directly confronts the ancient rules of Moses, Deuteronomy and Leviticus. It reminds me significantly of when Jesus would say to those, you have read it in the Scriptures, but I say to you, You realize that, right? If Jesus is not our hermeneutic, we can't read Scripture. Because you can't read the Old Testament unless you read it through the eyes of Jesus, because Jesus reinterpreted the passages. You realize that, right? Isaiah does the same kind of practice when he reaches back and directly in the face of those two traditions say, whoa, wait a second. Isaiah confronts those rules of Moses and We find in these verses in Isaiah that we're going to read in a second is direction by the prophet Isaiah to pay attention to the inclusiveness of God rather than the the exclusiveness of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Isaiah says this, Do not let the foreigner join to the Lord say, The Lord will separate me from his people. In the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love of the name of the Lord, to be his servant, to those who keep the Sabbath. Did you hear the requirement again? To those who do not profane it, welcome them. Directly in the face of the exclusion of the Amorites, the Moabites. Are you with me? Isaiah says, "Don't, don't do that. For if they're keeping the covenant, the Sabbath, they're loving the Lord, give them the hand. You with me? And it continues, though. Isaiah 56, if you want to read along. Then it says this. And do not let the eunuchs say, I am just a a dry tree. For says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me, who hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall never be cut off. That's confrontation by Isaiah, is it not? Isaiah says to the people of Israel, hey, come with me to the garage, you got something to say. Isaiah's call to the inclusion of foreigners and eunuchs, and I'm using that passage to make a point about what the job of the church is, is. it clearly contradicts this exclusion kind of thought of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And I hope you've been paying attention, for Isaiah did spell out the requirement for membership, by the way. This is not universalism that just says God doesn't care. There is a requirement, but it's not the requirements that we often think of. It's not this nationality or this, this uh, membership based on the foreigner or the insider. It's not the membership based on solely a disagreement of, of morality. He says there's a different kind of membership. Remarkably, it's not an ethnic qualification. It's not a qualification of purity. The condition spelled out by Isaiah is this. Keep the Sabbath. Are you with me? Jesus says, you tired, you worn out, you weary, come with me. I'm going to give you rest. Let me, let, me, let me show you some unforced rhythms of grace. Amen. Much of this thought today it comes to us out of a book called Sabbath as Resistance by one of my heroes, Walter Brueggemann. And in that book, he, this is a paragraph by, by Brueggemann says this, It is astonishing that of all the conditions for entry into the community of the people of God, they opted for Sabbath-keeping. It seems as if it is clear that Isaiah points to Sabbath being the single specific requirement for membership. 
That is because Sabbath represents a radical disengagement from the consumer rat race of empire. The community welcomes members of any race or nation, any gender or social condition, so long as that person is identified by justice, mercy, and compassion, not by competition, achievement, production, or acquisition. There is not a mention by Hosea for requirements into the people of God of purity, only work stoppage with neighborly pause for humanness. <laughs> I say that again. <laughs> Isaiah 56, if you're following, verse 8 continues and says this Thus says your Lord God, who gathers the outcast of Israel. You get the outcast? You get it? You get it? The God who gathers the outcast, who's in charge of establishing the membership? Thus says the Lord God, who gathers, who's the who? God. Thus says the Lord God, who gathers the outcast of Israel, I will gather others to them besides those that are already gathered. The problem with the church is that we've tried to decide who's in and who's out. And it is the grace of God that determines that. It is the cross of Jesus that determines that. God has spoken in Christ Jesus and said, all who believe. And you know the funny thing about that word all in Greek? It means all. (laughs) Isaiah is an ancient text that corrects an even more ancient text. Jesus is an ancient word, the word of God, who corrects And points to an ancient text that corrects an ancient text. You with me? That was really good preaching right there. Our time at the church and in the church, of the church, the time in our culture today is one of scatteredness, fear, competition, and scarcity. Not only from those who are begging to be acknowledged and are begging to just be welcomed into community, begging for someone to simply say, God sees you and loves you and calls you too. But our churches are so full of competition and so full of trying to be disappointed in one another that we just rumble past each other on the road and can't even acknowledge one another. Let alone welcome anybody that's wondering, do I belong? If we're going to listen to the corrective text of Jesus, the corrective word, if we're going to listen to the corrective text of Isaiah, we'll recognize that it is not the lists that determine our membership in God's love. However, listen to me, there is something that counts. You ready? There is a way to determine who is faithfully following Jesus. Did you know that? There is a list. It's a whole other list, and it comes to us from another guy, by the way, who would have been excluded under the former rules because he was a murderer. The Apostle Paul, who Jesus says, I'm going to build my church upon. How about that? You want to exclude him? I'll build my church on him. You with me? The Apostle Paul writes a list in Galatians 5 that helps us understand that there is a list. Do you know what that list says? Galatians 5. You ready? By contrast... By the fruit of the Spirit, by the way, it is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no membership law against these things, Paul said. You with me? Love? How's our love tonight? Joy? Joy. A marker of those who follow Jesus. Is your life full of joy? Peace? How are you doing with peace? You living in non-anxiousness? How's your peace? Patience? Kindness? Generosity? Faithfulness? Gentleness? Self-control? I can't help, but when you look at the biblical story, it's not, I guess it is ironic, but it's not coincidental that Paul's reference to fruit 
brings us full circle back to the very beginning, by the way. Because it was at the very beginning of this story of God that we find God himself being the word that spokes this, speaks this into existence and he blesses the human creation that he loves, that he gave himself to, that he created and said, this is mine, it is good. And then he says this, what? Be <laughs> fruitful. Come on, really? <laughs> Be fruitful, God said, from the very beginning. You can't tell me Paul didn't have that in mind. When Paul says, you know what it means to live inside of this identity of being God's? Be fruitful. It goes back to the very simple command. Before all that other like stuff that got in the way there, be fruitful. What's the fruit look like? Oh, let's read that list again. Love, joy, peace, kindness, patience, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Be fruitful. And then what does he say after that? God say to the creation. Woo, isn't that great? And multiply. Really? Here we thought we were just supposed to populate the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. Because guess what? Love, joy, peace, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, generosity, and self-control. If we had a bunch of churches full of people like that, you can't tell me the world wouldn't show up and want to be a part of that. Are you with me? That was fun, wasn't it? Thank you. Thanks be to God. Amen. I told you a little bit of my story. I took, I took an eight-week sabbatical that turned into um, a year and a half of sabbatical. I met with a spiritual director, is a mentor. Someone that I would say, I, I can't do this alone. I need someone to speak word, truth into my life. And I began to meet with him. We'd write back and forth. He'd give me things to read. I would write to it. He would ask questions. And one time we're sitting in a little first watch. You got first watches around here? It's like a breakfast joint kind of a deal in Cincinnati, Ohio. And I'm, I'm, I'm talking to him, and I say, I just, I can't, I just can't get my head wrapped around, I don't, I just, I don't understand how to be this, like, I, I just don't know how to be a conduit of grace to God's, you know, to the world, and, and I, I want such good things to happen, but, and he goes, what, wait, 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 stop, what'd you say? I said, I just, I just, I desperately want to be a conduit of God's grace. And he sat back and he set his coffee down, which I knew it was about to be serious then. And <laughs> he sat back in his chair and he goes, come here with me to the garage. <laughs> 84-year-old man, steeped in the scriptures, never known anything but anything less, anything less than knowing and following Christ with his life. If you put the list of Galatians next to this man's name, check, 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 check. When he speaks, it was my goal to listen. And I lean in. I just, man, I, I, just, I just want to be a conduit of God's grace. I want, I want to help people. And he sat back, put his coffee down. Did I say that? He goes, Shane, we've spent a lot of time together the last month or so, and I may have just finally heard the root of your dread and the root of your struggle. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, what, my desire to help people? Like, yeah, that's a problem? <laughs> he said, yeah, it actually, yeah, actually, yeah, it is. I said, well, you're going to have to help me here. Like, what do you mean? So let me tell you something. He said, 84 years of trying to understand this scriptural story. He said, trying to understand Christ, understand his church. I've come to the place that I, I, I don't think grace works that way. So what do you mean? He said, let me say it directly. 
you can't be a conduit of God's grace. And I crossed my arms. I said, I don't believe that. I've heard that my whole life, be a conduit of God's grace. He said, don't get stuck in the words. Hear the message. I said, okay, let me help me understand it. And I got out of my posture of defensiveness, and I began to listen. And he said this to me, and it has radically changed my life. He said, Shane, grace doesn't work that way. He said, for us to think ourselves as pastors or as Christians, as members of the God's family, for us to call ourselves or think of ourselves as somehow conduits separates us from the grace. You with me? He said, we begin to pick up a tradition that we read about in the Old Testament called the priestly tradition. And you begin to think of yourself as somehow separate than the world or better than the world, that you are somehow offering something to the world by your goodness. He said, and that's a problem because grace doesn't work that way. He said, not only that, you, you begin to think of yourself with a priestly tradition, but he said, you also kind of fall into this thing called the Levitical tra- tradition. I'm like, I don't, what's that? I don't know. He said, you begin to think somehow that by your own goodness, your own effort, your own purity, that somehow you have already deserved to have God's grace. Amen. He said, that's a problem because grace doesn't work that way. I said, you're going to have to help me. I'm hearing you, but I'm not quite there yet. He said, let me see. He said, Shane, I think if you're going to find the peace, the wholeness, the holiness that you're looking for, you're going to have to start thinking about yourself as a light bulb. I said, okay. He said, because a light bulb is at the very end of the circuit. He said, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God is, is the power of God that runs down the conduit. The conduit of God is none other than Jesus Christ. The grace of God comes through the conduit of God, empowered by the Spirit of God. And when you, at the very end of the target, get hit by grace, you might light up. But Shane, you've got to start thinking of yourself as the target of grace, not the conduit of grace. I left that place, and that's why my eight-week sabbatical turned into a year-and-a-half sabbatical. As I said, I'm going to have to take Sabbath to figure this out. I'm going to have to sit back and and listen. I'm going to have to sit back and, and respond to the grace of God. Because I am the target of grace. And I think this evening, if I could summarize the last several minutes that we've been together, the desperate need of the holiness church is to stop thinking of ourselves as a holy people and to start thinking of ourselves as a people in the shared need of grace. Because when we begin to realize that we are all beginners in following Christ Jesus, that our neighbors, that our friends, that our family members that have said no to the church might begin to see our humbleness and our desire and need of God's grace in our own life. And they might begin to see that that grace forms us into a people who are kind and gentle and full of joy. And they might begin to say, who is this conduit? Who is this Jesus? By what power do you have such lightness and freeness in your life? 
Can you stand with me? I invite you to extend your hands with your palms open just simply as a posture of saying, I will receive the gift of grace given to me. And may you hear this prayer and then we're going to sing together. God who is for us, we call you Father. God who is alongside us, we call you Jesus. God, who empowers within us, we call you the Holy Spirit. You are the eternal mystery that enables, enfolds, and enlivens all things. Even us, even me. We are the target of your grace. Every name that falls short of your goodness and greatness, that's us. Those are our names. We can only see you in what is, and we ask for a perfect seeing as it was in the beginning. Be fruitful is now and forever will be. Amen. May we be Christian targets of God's grace.